0: You're listening to the FC Young Adult Podcast. What's good, you guys? Hope that you are doing good. We are in part four, the final part of our series entitled Ruth. If you haven't heard any of this yet, that's okay. It's all on the podcast. You can head back to the last several episodes and get caught up. Last week, Amy Mitchell brought an incredible word through Chapter 3 of this book Ruth and today or this week we are going to wrap it up with chapter 4 and um man the parallels that we've talked about have been incredible the the representations of of how Jesus interacts with us has just been so awesome and one of the things that, that Amy talked about last week one of the questions she asks is are we willing to lay our situations at the feet of our redeemer And I thought that was such a good question, and and man, it stuck with me all week after I listened to her message. And and this week, as we walk through chapter 4, we'll we'll continue to see these themes um, and these parallels that Amy pointed out last week, that we've pointed out the last several weeks. So we're going to start in Ruth chapter 4, verse... One, because what we found last week is that chapter three kind of leaves us with a cliffhanger that Boaz has this intention to marry Ruth, um, but there's a closer relative who gets the opportunity to be her guardian redeemer first. And we're left there where we know that Boaz has the intention, but we don't actually know what happened. So, chapter four, verse one, starts to give us some clarification. It says, Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Simple verse, but it's important that we highlight something out of this is that Boaz actively handles the situation. He doesn't wait for things to fall into place. He moves and he moves on behalf of Ruth. And for us, it's a reminder of this is that God moves on our behalf. God moves on our behalf. I don't know where the lie of God being passive started, but it feels like the majority of us at some point have bought into the lie that God is uninvolved. What we have to understand is that God is always moving. He's moving through us. He's moving for us. He's moving around us, and he is absolutely moving in us. The danger of believing in, God, in a God of, of passivity is that we box God into being involved only in certain places or certain times. And, and we start to to say, well, he couldn't possibly care about my circumstance, my circumstance in the grand scheme of things. When all of these things are happening in the world, a global pandemic, we're talking about world hunger, we're talking about racial issues. We're talking about all these different things that are going on, these big, massive things that are touching thousands, millions of lives. How would he possibly have time for me? But that's also putting God in this small, finite box that would say, oh, well, he only has this much attention span. He could only possibly focus on those things. How could he focus on my situation? And when we're talking about putting God in, in a box. It's it's also really important that God, we understand that God is not hamstrung by our, by our gathering times or hamstrung by our, our personal devotions and all of those different things. Like like, I love Tuesday nights. I love Tuesday nights because we get to gather publicly as a family, and we get to worship together, and we get to learn together. But God is present on a, on a Wednesday night or a Thursday night or a Friday night, just as much as he is on a Tuesday night. And as we're digging into our word or we're listening to worship in our car, like God is just as present there as he is anywhere else. And God is as present in the silence as he is in the loud environments. And he's as present in the valleys as he is on the mountaintops. What we have to understand is that God is always attuned, always attuned to our situations. The question we really need to ask is, are we attuned to his voice as he's speaking into those exact situations. Because often we speak a lot more than we're willing to listen. We throw prayers at God and then we bail. We say like, Lord, this is everything that's going on. Do something about it. And we leave. Well, really we should spend as much time, if not more time listening for the voice of God as we do speaking to God. Would we be people who understand that God is always involved? He is always attuned to our situation. He always cares. The story in Ruth goes on to say this in verses 2 through 6. It says, Boaz took 10 of the elders and he said, sit here. So they did so. Then he said to the Guardian Redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from Moab is selling this piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should <clears throat> excuse me, I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here, and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so, but if you won't, tell me, so I'll know, for no one has a right to do this except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day that you buy that land from Naomi, by the way. By the way, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the foreigner, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. So the next point is this. There's a cost of redemption. There's a cost of redemption. The reality of the situation was, was that there was going to be a cost to being the redeemer. Not only was it going to cost money, it meant taking on the foreign widow. It meant taking on Ruth. The cost was not worth it for the relative. And as we're looking at parallels, as we're looking at examples in the story of how Jesus redeems us, it's important that we point out that the cost was not too high for Jesus. That Jesus did not look at acquiring us and say, Oh, then I can't do it. If I have to, if I have to forgive them, if I have to take on them, if I have to love them, if I have to adopt them into sonship, then it's not worth it. No, the cost was not too high for Christ. It can be really easy for us to try to quantify and calculate the actual cost of Jesus as he hung on the cross for our redemption. But there's no way that we ever could like the physical pain. Like we can somehow in our humanity be like, yeah, that was excruciating. Like I I think I can kind of imagine, like I think about a spear in my side and I'm like, oh my gosh, like the pain, like, oh. I, I can think about the public shame. I can think about the humiliation. I feel like I can and kind of come to some kind of conclusion and be like, yeah, I, I think I can understand that. I can grasp the weight of the shame. But what about the weight of billions of people's sin, past, present, and future? How do we calculate the weight of that? How do we calculate the pain of that? How do we calculate the shame of that? How do we calculate those things? The answer is that we can't. We can't. And Jesus knew what he was doing and he did it anyway. The cost was not too high for Jesus. For many of us, we have convinced ourselves that our individual brokenness creates too much of a cost for Jesus. This is what's really fickle and interesting and funny about the way our human minds work. Earlier, we talked about how God couldn't possibly care enough about my individual circumstance because there's all of these big things that are happening in the world. But when it comes to the redemption and the forgiveness of Jesus, we're like, God actually cares too much that like his care for my situation, his, his, his intentional, like he is looking directly at my situation and the cost is too high. We, we, we can't believe that he could possibly forgive us because he looks at our brokenness and in our, our fallibility. And he looks at all of the things that we've done, all of our sin. And he's like, we, we we just assume that he couldn't possibly forgive us. While simultaneously believing that God is not as present as we wish He was. Like, can we stop? Can we stop and pause and think about the payment that Jesus made and understand that He was saying, I see you, I'm involved with you, I see your situation, I love you, all the best, all the brokenness, all the success, and all of the things that come with it, the cost is not too high. I love you, I will redeem you, and I will forgive you, not just today, but every day for all of eternity. I also think it's important that we look at our own human relationships and how this, this concept plays in. And a question that I want to ask this week is, do we see people as a risk or as an opportunity? Do we see people as a risk or an opportunity? You see the closer relative the, the first the, the guy who gets the first crack at being the Guardian Redeemer believed that Ruth was going to be a risk to what he already had. and he he might not have been wrong. Like there very much could have been a risk involved there they like maybe he already had a couple wives and he already had land and and taking on Ruth was going to endanger his relationships taking on Ruth was going to endanger just like the processes that he had going on whatever we don't we don't know the exact reason why he believed it was an endanger to his estate but it very much could have been however As we look at that, it struck me how human that response is and how that often plays into the way that we put people into these two categories. Now, I fully understand that relationships are incredibly complicated and it's not as black and white as this, but when we think about people, we sometimes unconsciously determine if the relationship will be a benefit or a difficulty. Like, hear me, there are going to be people who fill you up and there are going to be people who you have to pour into, who actually drain you. And there are going to be incredible relationships where both things are happening simultaneously. Like those are the healthiest relationships where you are pouring out, but they're pouring into you, and and you leave like you like you benefited from it, but you also feel like you are a benefit to them. Like those are incredible relationships to have. Here's the thing: a sign of relational maturity is being able to balance those relationships out. That's a sign of relational maturity. A sign of spiritual maturity is allowing the Lord to help you find that balance. You see, relational maturity is really good, but we want spiritual maturity. We want relationally spiritual maturity. Because if left to our own devices, left to our own humanity, the things that we're going to do is we're going to try to find the people who either fill us up or who are simultaneously filling us up as we're pouring out. And rarely will we seek out people that we pour into that aren't a benefit to us. They're more of a risk than they are an opportunity. They're more of a difficulty than a benefit. But when we ask the Lord to give us supernatural strength, what we find is spiritual maturity in our relationships where we can step into any relationship and whether we are pouring out or being poured into, we find benefit from it we find opportunity from it. At the end of the day, the most important thing for us to recognize is that every single one of us is a risk to Jesus. Every one of our sins was a cost to Jesus, yet he didn't see us as a risk. He didn't see us as a cost. He he deemed us loved. He deems us worth it. He sees opportunity and he sees potential in each and every one of us. So would we have the heart of Jesus? Would we say, Lord, give me your eyes, give me your heart, give me your spirit as I'm entering into the relationships around me and would I not look at people as risks? Would I look at people as opportunities and would I look at those situations as opportunities to be you to the people around me? Boaz did not look at Ruth as a risk. He looked at Ruth as somebody with potential, as somebody who was an opportunity and somebody that he could love really, really well. So the story goes on to say this, chapter four, verses nine through 11 says, then Boaz announced to the elders and to all the people today, you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi, all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malone. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite, Malone's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. These are matriarchs of the Israelites who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. I love the verbiage that Boaz uses. He's announcing what's happening. I want all of you to see what I'm about to do. I want all of you to see that I'm making a purchase. I have purchased this land, and through this purchase, I am acquiring Ruth. And I am going to take her, and I am going to make her my wife. And this is so that the name of her her late husband is not going to be erased from family history. It's not going to be erased from the hometown. I am doing something for the greater good. I am doing something for Ruth. I am doing something for this family because I believe this is what God has asked me to do. He's making an announcement. And as we look at the parallels, as we look at Jesus, what we understand this is that the cross was Jesus' announcement. Jesus was making a similar announcement to Boaz. The span and the depth of it just happened to be in a whole different stratosphere for all people for all time. And Jesus was saying, I want all of you to see that I've paid the price. It could have been private, but it, it wasn't private. It was as public as it got. He hung on a cross in front of everybody, naked and ashamed and beaten and bruised. And he wanted to make an announcement. He wanted to make an announcement that he had covered the cost. And because of that, he had acquired sons and daughters. The cross was Jesus' announcement. Another beautiful parallel is the fact that Ruth wasn't actually the cost to Boaz. The land is what Boaz purchased. Ruth was the prize. Ruth was the bonus. Jesus paid the cost to cover our sin. The price that he paid wasn't just for us. It was to cover our sin, to redeem our brokenness. And we were the prize. That the sons and daughters of God is what he was in pursuit of. The price that he paid was for our sin. And the prize was you and I. It's important that we understand that we're not a burden to God, that he is overjoyed to have a relationship with us. It's why he created us in the first place. Even through our mistakes, Jesus, Jesus made his decisions out of love, not out of obligation. He joyfully, joyfully said yes. And No matter what we believe about Jesus, would we understand the truth that God would do it again and again and again because he has called us his beloved There's a, there's a quote by C.S. Lewis. It's, it's hanging in my office. I'm looking at it right now. It says, he died not for man, but for each man. If each man had been the only man made, he would have done no less. Would we understand that truth? God died for you. He died for me. He paid the price so that he could acquire us as his sons and his daughters. So going back to the story of Boaz and Ruth, in the midst of this announcement, Boaz makes sure that's not just the elders, but it's all the people, so that all the people would hear. In verse 11, all the people and the elders respond by saying, "Yeah, yeah, we are witnesses. They could confirm what had been done, and for us, it's important that we understand that we are his witnesses. We do not have the power to save, but we know the one who does. So for those of us who consider ourselves to be followers of Jesus, this is a reminder that we're not meant to only hear the announcement, but to share it with the world around us. The reason that we're having this conversation 2,000 years later is because people said, no, I'm not just going to hear the story of Jesus. I'm not going to just experience the story of Jesus. I'm not just going to feel the love of Jesus, but I'm going to spread the love of Jesus. I'm going to continue talking about it. I can't help but think about the conversations that that community had following this moment. Like, Man, Boaz, did you hear what he did? He bought Elimelech's land, and, and through that, he, he purchased the foreigner, Ruth, that Moabite woman. Like, Why would he do that? Why would, why would he buy the land when he knew that Ruth was attached to the land? Like, I can't believe that he'd do that. Would we be willing to have conversations similar about what Jesus has done? He paid the ultimate price. He, he took me, this man. He took me, this woman, the sinner, the foreigner. And he paid the price so that he could adopt me into sonship with him. I think what we have to understand is we're talking about being witnesses for Jesus is that this idea of evangelism has gotten really muddy and we believe that we have to stand on street corners and we have to be super theologically sound and we have to have to know all, like we cross all of our T's and dot all of our I's and take hermeneutics and take church history and all of these things. None of those things are bad. I think all of us should at some point like dig into the word in, in new and incredible ways and study. But what we have to understand is that the greatest evangelistic tool that we will ever have is the thing that we are given from the start. And that's our story. That's our story. You might believe that your story is insignificant, but your story matters a great deal. And your story is what's going to lead people to the throne of God. The people are going to be interested in you witnessing you being a witness to what's happened in your own life. We all have front row seats to our own lives. And we get to tell people about how Jesus has changed those very lives. The story wraps up, end of chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. And it says this. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, this is Ruth's mother-in-law, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons. Which, can we pause there? Can we understand that they just said, Ruth, your daughter-in-law who loves you, who's better than seven sons. This is a woman in a culture that did not, appreciate women. This was a woman who was given to Naomi through tragedy. And they're saying, man, it's better to have Ruth than it is to have seven sons. Man, what a statement. Ruth is given in birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. And this might be the most important sentence in the entire book of Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. This is so important. If you continue to do the last six or seven verses, it just lays down the lineage of David. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. The last point this week is redemption leads to the Redeemer. To wrap up, uh, it's important that we focus on the way the story ends because the beautiful actions by Ruth and Boaz are amazing. What they couldn't have known is that those actions would lead not only to King David, but to Jesus himself. We cannot undersell the importance of making simple, faith-filled decisions in our present circumstance your present circumstance, your current circumstance, and the small, faith-filled decisions that you are making today and tomorrow and the next day could lead to incredible things. Let us never undersell small, faithful decisions. Our decisions will not bring about the birth of the Redeemer because we live on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus. But our decisions could lead someone into his presence. Our small, faith-filled faith-filled decisions in our current circumstance could lead someone into his presence. And I don't think there's anything better than that. And if one person, if one person comes to know the love of Jesus because of how we live our lives and the faithful decisions that we make, that's worth more than anything that we could ever imagine. Thank you for listening to the FC Young Adult Podcast. If you are in the Billings area, we would love to see you at our in-person gatherings on Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. If you're unable to attend in person, there are always ways to engage online. Follow along through Instagram at faithchapel.ya or find our ministry page at faithchapel.cc. You are loved.